Well, good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. Uh, my name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's awesome to have you with us. I have really enjoyed the small group commercials over the last three weeks. Uh, if you missed those, <laughs> they're all online. I want to say hello to those of you joining us online, and uh, if you're in a parent viewing room, that's a great option. If you have small children, you prefer to keep with you during the service. Also, um, man, it's awesome to see like uh, we're starting to spread out a little bit more at the 930 service. And uh, just a quick mention, uh, we need a couple of more people helping out during the third service with Kids Check-In. If that's something that you'd be interested in, just write Kids Check-In on the back of your connection card today. And uh, we want to make sure that when people come to third service at 11, that uh, we are able to check in their kids. So if that's something you'd be interested in, even if you attend this service, you could stick around, serve for a little bit, and then head home. And so uh, just kind of throwing that out there if that's something you'd want to participate in. Now, we are wrapping up a series today. It's only been three-week series, kind of a, a quick series of talks on marriage. So if you missed any of the previous weeks, I'd encourage you to go back and check those out. There's some helpful things regardless of where you find yourself uh, in the kind of relational spectrum. But today, as we wrap up the series today, I want to uh, remind us and, and kind of encourage us to think back to our very first cell phone. Does anybody remember their very first cell phone? Now, Many of us grew up in an era where we had landlines, and if you don't know what that is, it's your phone is actually attached to the wall. It's pretty wild. Uh, it was some, an invention from the 1900s. And, um, and so all of us in the 1900s had this. And then even in the 90s, even back in the 1900s, they had um, this thing called a cell phone. But when it first came out, it was a pretty big deal. And it wasn't like everybody just had one. It was actually a bag phone, and it looked like this. Okay, this is unbelievable, the bag phone. And the reason that it, that it was a bag phone is because uh, you had to carry around literally like a backpack and it had a battery pack in it that then like connected to the phone and you had this antenna that was like a, kind of a hazard to low flying airplanes. And so it was just this huge deal. But if you had one of these, it was like, oh my gosh, that person can make calls from their car. It's amazing, unbelievable. And then uh, technology kind of picked up a little bit, and, and the next sort of, uh, sort of iteration of cell phones was the, the Motorola DynaTAC, otherwise known as the Zach Morris phone. If you're a fan of Saved by the Bell, Zach Morris would bust this out of his backpack and when he needed to make a call. And then it went from that to uh, the Motorola, uh, it's called the StarTAC. This was the first flip phone. Some of you might have had this. You'd flip it up, you'd pull that little antenna, and then this was like so awesome because when you'd hang up at the end, you would just go, just close it, and you're like, it was such a power move, you know? You're like, yeah, later, and just close it with your hand. It was awesome. And then uh, came out the Crackberry, uh, the Blackberry, sorry. Um, this was the phone that got super addictive where it was like, oh my gosh, it's a full QWERTY keyboard. I don't have to like text people by going, eh, eh, hit the button three times for one letter. And uh, like, this is the phone where I can get emails on my phone. I can like uh, play Brick Breaker. Hello, this was awesome. And then this is where we first started to get addictive. Uh, we were like, look at all the stuff that this does. And that kind of led us into the iPhone, God's favorite. <laughs> God's favorite phone is the iPhone. And... Uh, these phones then would ping and they would ding and they would, and every time they did, it, it would get a, like, it would give us a little bit of a endorphin rush, you know, and uh, it, much the same way that cocaine does, uh, because uh, we got addicted to these things. It was like, ding, yep, I'm here, ding, yep, text message, oh, all right, uh, email, and it was just like every time, and we look at these things now hundreds and hundreds of times a day. Now, here's the problem with the iPhone specifically, you always want to get the next one. 
They keep coming out with new versions, right? You're like, you're like, man, at one point, I remember the iPhone 4 was just, it just like changed the game. And, I, and now it's like, oh, and then I got to get the 7, then the 7 plus, and then the 8, and then the 10. What happened to 9? No one knows. They just skipped 9. And then <laughs> they just went straight to 10. And then the 11, and the 12, and the 13. They're up to 15 now, right? And, and you're like, oh, I got to get all the next things. I got I to gotta get the ones that keep giving me the upgrades. And, um, and then they were like, man, I, I, the next one, I, re, I mean, my phone works fine, but I got to get the next one because it's got facial recognition software. I mean, now, now I just have to hold it up and it turns on. I can't be doing this all day, you know, pushing a button and whatnot. I mean, I just got to hold it up and then it works. And then from there, you, you got to start figuring out, like, I need the upgrade because I need to move from 3G to 4G. I got to move from 4G to 4G LTE to 5G. It's like, how many Gs do you need? Gs. And then, uh, like, whenever there's an upgrade, this is why they get you. Because you want the upgrade really bad, but in order to get the upgrade, you got to sign the long-term contract. Right? And who wants to be stuck in a long-term contract with an old phone? And this is where we bring marriage and phones together. Right? You're like, why is he talking about this? Because a lot of marriages find themselves in this place where they're like, man, I want to upgrade the old bag phone. <laughs> but a phone is a contract. It's a contract, right? And a marriage is not a contract. Uh, contrary to what you might think, a marriage is not a contract. In fact, this is really, really important for us to realize. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. Now, this is uh, really important. In our culture, we tend to view marriage as a contract. We don't think about it as a covenant. In fact, covenant isn't really a word that we use very often. It's a word that is used a lot, though, throughout the scriptures. When writing about marriage in the scriptures, the authors never refer to this idea of a contract. They always refer to a covenant. Now, here's the difference. A contract is a legal transaction, and it is based on both parties getting something from the other. When I buy a car, that's a contract. I give them money. I get a set of wheels. But a covenant is a relational agreement. It's not a legal agreement. It's a relational agreement that is based not on both parties getting something, but on both parties giving something. I'm entering into this thing where I'm committing to give you something, not committing to getting something. A contract is conditional, and it's predicated on mistrust. The whole point of a contract is to say, I don't trust you. It's predicated on mistrust. And so I have to have this contract in place so that you'll follow through with the thing that we've both agreed you'll do and vice versa. A covenant is unconditional, and it's predicated on trust. It's what it's based on. A contract is based on compromise. But uh, it's like, if you do your part, I'll do mine. It's 50-50 agreement. A covenant is based on sacrifice. I will give 100% of myself to you without expecting anything in return. A contract is temporary. When the obligation is met, the agreement ends. When I've made the last car payment, the agreement's over. A covenant is permanent. There is no revocation. There is no taking it back. It is a forever promise. Buying a car is a contract in the sense that it will not fundamentally change you as a person. But marriage is a covenant. It fundamentally changes who you are at your core. You are no longer I and me. Now you are us and we. It changes you. 
That's why the Apostle Paul would write this to a group of people living in Ephesus. He says, marriage is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. It's an illustration. It's meant to be this daily reminder that you're in a covenant relationship the way that God has entered into a covenant relationship with you. The way that God has said, look, this isn't conditional and you better keep your part or else. God enters into this covenant relationship with us where he says this is unconditional. It's not a legal contract. It's a a relational agreement that we would say, I'm for you. I'm, I'm giving my all to you regardless of how you respond. And so it's important for us to recognize that's what marriage is. And here's the myth that we have kind of bought into as a culture is that true love is about finding the right person. It's, it's about finding the one, right? We, we've bought into this notion, if I can just find the one, my soulmate. And here's the problem with that. And sometimes people get this idea that, well, God has just created the right person for each one of us. And that's the person he's created for you. It's God's will. It's God's plan for you to get married to this person. And if you get married to that person, it's going to be great because that's your soulmate. And that's who God created you for. The problem with that is somewhere along the way, in the course of human history, somebody missed it. Which means all along the way, there's this domino effect through every generation. And they messed up the whole sequence. Bad news, right? And so here's the reality. We have bought into this notion, if I can find my soulmate, if I can just find the one for me, I'll, be ha- I'll live happily ever after. That's why there are so many reality shows. My wife calls them documentaries that are, uh, <laughs> what, are you, what are you watching? It's a documentary. I'm following the life of this young man and 30 women who are all dating him. Oh, interesting. They're documenting it. It's a documentary. That's called The Bachelor, all right? And there are so many of these shows, right? It's like uh, The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, uh, Bachelor in Paradise, Bachelor, uh, you know, in Texas, whatever. There's so many Bachelor spinoffs. It's unbelievable. Uh, Married at First Sight. Have you ever seen the reality show called Working on Myself? No. Boring. I want to see two people who have never met before get married the day they meet. And then I want to watch how that unfolds. That's the reality show I want to see. And the whole idea is, man, the experts have found the, the right person. They've, pitched, they've put us together, and this is going to be amazing. And if I can just find the right person, if I can meet someone I have passion and chemistry with, then everything's going to be great in marriage. And here's what we have to understand. Who we marry is not nearly as important as how we do marriage. Who we marry is not nearly as important as how we do marriage. Now, I'm not saying that who you marry isn't important, but it's not nearly as important as the person that you are and the way that you conduct yourself in that marriage relationship. So many times when I'm officiating weddings, I remind the couple, look, this is not a celebration of finding the one. This is a commitment where you're making that person the one. You're deciding this is my one. When Cherry and I met, we were 16 years old. We got married when we were 19, and uh, we've had amazing times together, and we've hit some major hurdles along the way. And I can tell you, uh, we've been married for almost 25 years, and here's what I can tell you. To give up on your marriage because you feel like love has died is like getting rid of your car because it ran out of gas. When the love in in your marriage seems non-existent, it seems like the feelings of love and romance have started to simmer, you need to find ways to refuel. Because it doesn't matter who you're in a relationship with, feelings of chemistry and infatuation The the science tells us it lasts at most for 24 months. That's it. 
That's why in the beginning, that relationship feels so good. But there's a shelf life to that. It lasts for about 24 months. And after that, it's a lot of hard work and a lot of sacrifice. That's what marriage is. And so you got a couple of options. You can either put the work in on your marriage now, or you can jump into a new relationship every 24 months. Those are your options. Now, here's what's amazing. Falling in love requires a pulse. That's all it takes to fall in love. It's amazing. Like, like here, if you're like, man, just can I fall in love? Just go like this. And if you feel anything, you can fall in love. Falling in love requires a pulse. Now, staying in love requires a plan. It doesn't just happen. It requires a plan. And that's exactly what this series is all about because we've all read the storybooks. We've all uh, heard the fairy tales. Every fairy tale that ever comes out has the exact same plot, right? Her life is a mess. His life is a mess. They meet each other and they live happily ever after. And all their problems magically melt away. That's why fairy tales are great. That's why, that's why romantic comedies are great. It's like every single romantic comedy ends up with a couple who they just managed to somehow find each other despite overwhelming odds. They fall in love. They overcome every adversity and they live happily ever after. And that is why rom-coms are 90 minutes. Because once they meet, they don't show you the rest of their life. Because then real life happens. They don't show you two weeks later in their life. There's no rom-com that's like, uh, fast forward six years and uh, they've got three kids under the age of five and uh, let's see what life is like for this lovely couple. Because we live in such an entertainment-driven society, the overpowering view of love and marriage and relationships is this unrealistic fantasy world. And if we're not intentional about getting some wisdom about how to have a plan to make our marriage last, then we can carry that fantasy with us from our dating relationship into our engagement, into our marriage. So let's be honest. Falling in love is easy. I fell in love with a burrito last week. (laughs) Staying in love, that takes a plan. Staying in love is a lot of work. It's a challenge. Two people trying to come together and live as one is very, very difficult because you have different personalities and different backgrounds and different ways of thinking and seeing the world and interpreting life and just just all kinds of differences. And that's why uh, the Apostle Paul at one point wrote to people in the city of uh, Corinth and said, however, those who get married at this time will have troubles and I am trying to spare you those problems. This is not the verse that gets read at weddings. There's There's no Hallmark card that has this verse on it. Right, you open it up and it's just like, hey, congrats on the wedding, brace yourself. It doesn't exist. And I want to be really clear with you today, you do not have to think of your spouse as the old ball and chain, all right? It is possible to have a fun and healthy marriage where both of you are friends and partners and lovers for life. But if you're going to do that, you got to have a plan. You cannot just keep doing the same thing you've always done and hope that it will work out. That's again why the Apostle Paul actually wrote to people in the first century and said this. He said, when I was a child, I spoke and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. When I was a child, I I saw the world the way that children see the world. But when I grew up, I had to face reality. I had to to think about things differently. And the reality is, if you're going to experience a marriage that thrives, then you got to have a plan. And the only way to do that is to say, okay, When I was a child, I thought and reasoned and I saw things like a child. But when I grew up, I need to to grow up and see things differently. I need to come up with a plan to establish true love and friendship that will grow between me and my spouse. So 
God's plan for making marriage thrive. There's a few things. And here, here's the goal for today. My goal for today is that you could take some of these things and you could put them into practice this afternoon. Here, here's what I don't want to have happen. We always uh, say this, and it's, we say this because we really believe it, that um, we won't say it on Sunday if you can't use it on Monday. If you can't use it on Monday, then we won't say it on Sunday. Because the last thing we want is for, uh, is for you to just walk out of here and go, well, that was some cliche platitude that made me feel good, and I checked the box, and me and God are good for another week, so, well, see you, see you next week, preacher. There's no point to it if you can't actually put it into practice. There's no point to it if it can't, doesn't make its way into the way that you live your life. So it's not just about information. It's about application. And so I want to give you some things that, that's wisdom from the scriptures that we've learned over time, over years, and go, okay, if I put this into practice in my life, it can actually make a difference in my marriage today, starting today. And if you're not married, you can put some of these things into practice with any relationship in your life, relationships with kids, relationships with parents, coworkers, neighbors, and these things will still apply. So number one, make your love a matter of choice. Make your love a matter of choice. From the time that we were young, over and over and over again, culture teaches us love is about a feeling, and it's about chemistry. It's a quiver in the liver, the ocean of emotion, all right? And when you first start dating, guess what happens? You have this thing called chemistry. And do you know why it's called chemistry? Because that's exactly what it is. It is a chemical reaction in your body. And so you meet someone, and you're attracted to them, and they're attracted to you. And there is something in your body that takes place where uh, there is a dopamine release. And dopamine is a chemical that gets released where it says this. Dopamine is actually the pleasure chemical in your body that says, that felt good, I want more. That's why uh, dopamine release can be uh, addictive. It's the same thing that gets released when you're addicted to any kind of, anything you're addicted to. It's a, it's a dopamine release and you're like, I need more of that. Your body says, I need to get more. And so you chase it. And this happens at the beginning of every relationship. It's chemistry. It's when you just can't, you just can't stop thinking about each other. You talk on the phone for hours. When Cherry and I were first dating, I lived in Chicago. She lived here in Minneapolis. And we would we just have like these majorly expensive phone bills because we just talked on the phone for hours. You, no, you hang up first. No, you hang up. And it's just chemistry. You're walking on air. You just, the thought of them, you can't wait to see them again. You can't wait to talk to them again. This happens in the beginning of every relationship because chemistry is exactly what it sounds like. It is a chemical reaction. When you're together, you just stare at each other. You go out to eat and you have fun. You think, we were just made for each other. You're, you're my soulmate. And you really believe that you are experiencing this one-of-a-kind, unique, over-the-top kind of love. And chemistry tricks us into thinking, it's amazing. I, I never have to be patient with her because she never gives me any reason to have to be patient. <laughs> I, you know, I, I never get re resentful or angry or bitter with him because he never gives me any reason to be angry or bitter or resentful. And then there's, there's something really fun about that phase of relationships, isn't there? And it's important. The body works that way because it's like, it's like it, it, it takes a lot more jet fuel to get off the runway, and then you get to cruising altitude. And it's like you need that chemical at first because it's what initially attracts you to someone. And so you have that, and then it goes away, right? And there's something also dangerous about that phase of relationships because we associate these feelings so closely with true love, and when the chemistry wears off, which it always does... The tendency is to start to believe, well, 
we fell out of love. I just don't love that person anymore. And so what happens is, for so many people in our culture, they meet, there's chemistry, there is connection, they laugh together, they enjoy each other's company, they're physically attracted to each other, they have sex, and then they go, this is great, let's get married. Everything, all the signs are pointing to it. Let's do this. And they get married. And then do you know what happens? The chemistry goes away. And guess what are the first things to go? Laughter and sex. And then you go, whoa, what happened? All the chemistry's gone. We're not laughing like we used to. We're not enjoying each other's company like we used to. And we're not having as much sex as we used to. So the chemistry has faded. And guess what? We just fell out of love. We just don't love each other anymore. And what you start to discover is that when you have a few little things like that and you, and you build it on chemistry, you discover, oh, man, we had enough to start a marriage with, but we didn't have enough to build a marriage on. And the Apostle Paul would write to people and describe a very different thing. In fact, there's a whole other chemical that takes place when you fight through some of those feelings of chemistry and the chemistry wears off, and then you decide, nope, this is the person I'm committed to. And it's a whole different chemical, and it's called serotonin. And when that gets into your body, it says the exact opposite of dopamine. Dopamine says, that felt good, I need more. Serotonin says, that felt good, I'm content. And it's a deeper, more satisfying, fulfilling feeling that gets that chemical that's released in your body, and you go, I'm content. And Paul talks about, here's what true love looks like. Now, here's what's awesome. These, these verses are often read at weddings. I use these verses at weddings all the time. But Paul isn't writing to married people when he writes these verses. He's writing to people people. He's just writing to normal people or messed up people. He says, this is what it looks like to love. So no matter what relationship you find yourself in, Paul says, this is what it looks like. And he says this, love is patient and kind. Is that a choice or an emotion? Patient. I've never felt patient. Patience is a choice. I've never woken up in the morning just been like, I feel so patient today. Yeah, no, no, no. No, after you. No, go ahead, merge, merge. No, no, go ahead, merge. Yeah, after you. That's never happened. Uh, I've never felt that. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Choice, 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 choice. Every one of those is a choice. Right? It does not demand its own way. That's a choice. It is not irritable. Choice. Keeps no record of being wronged. Choice. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Choice, 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 choice. None of these are emotions. You'll notice every single one of these things is a choice. And the reality is you didn't fall out of love because you never fell in love. You might have fallen in emotion. You might have fallen in chemistry. You might have fallen in infatuation. But you can't fall out of love because you didn't fall in love. Love is a choice. And when the emotions or the feelings fade, then here's what we think. Well, I've fallen out of love. But the reality is you haven't fallen out of love. You've simply chosen to stop doing things that communicate love effectively. It's a choice. And you've chosen to stop behaving in ways that prioritize love. True love that goes the distance actually has very little to do with feelings has very little to do with chemistry. It has a lot to do with choice. And while our feelings are definitely affected by love, they should never define our love. Again, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to people in the first century and says this. He says, over all these virtues, put on love. 
which binds them all together in perfect unity. He says you, you put it on. It's something that you do every day. It's a conscious decision. It's the same as if you put on clothes in the morning. You put on love. You just decide. It's built into your routine. I get up in the morning and I put on clothes and I put on love. You would never walk out of your house and go, oh, I forgot to put on clothes today. But we sometimes do that with love. And, and we just, we drift. We set ourselves up for extreme disappointment and extreme disillusionment when we allow our love to be defined by feelings and infatuation and chemistry. This isn't something that just comes and goes. The command is that we intentionally make the choice every day to put on love like an article of clothing that we put on in the morning. And so here's the question that each of us needs to ask ourselves. In my marriage relationship, maybe in my relationship with my kids, my relationship with my parents, my relationships with others? Is, is the way that I love going to be fueled by my emotions? In which case, it's always just going to be like this and however you happen to feel that day. Or is it going to be fueled by my commitment, my decision, my choice? Okay, no matter who's on the other side, I'm going to choose to be patient. I'm going to choose to be kind. I'm going to choose not to be irritable. I'm going to choose not to be proud. I'm going to choose not to be rude. I'm going to choose not to hold grudges. Every one of those things is a choice. Let me also add this. Feelings and chemistry actually do come alive again when you make the right decisions. Here's what you know instinctively, but maybe has never been put in these terms before for you. You will never feel your way into an action. You will only ever behave your way into a feeling. See, if you wait to feel in order to act, you'll never act. Well, when I feel like forgiving them, when I feel like their apology, then I'll forgive. You'll never forgive. When I feel like I'm in love with them, then that's when I'll start to, you know, show my love to them. You'll never get around to it. You never feel your way into action. What you do is you make the right choice and you behave your way into a feeling because when you make right choices, right emotions follow. You want chemistry and feelings of, you, know, you want that to come alive again? Then you choose to love. And you'll, you'll feel that come alive. But love is a choice. Number two, make your love a matter of conduct. Make your love a matter of conduct, not just a choice, but actions, one of the best ways to make your marriage thrive is to make sure that you don't fall into the trap of defining your love as simply a belief. Love is not about what you say. It is about what you do. And in our culture, there's this great phrase, actions speak louder than words. And that's so true. I think it's an accurate statement because it's, it's one thing to say the words, I love you, and it's another thing entirely to show it by your actions. And to be honest with you, this is a barrier that a lot of marriages get stuck on. Because uh, there's this gap between what I'm saying and what I'm doing. You're communicating with your actions and not just your words. And so the words, I love you, but then the, the other person doesn't actually feel that love. That's why John, one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, writing to all of Jesus' followers uh, throughout the Roman Empire in the first century, he writes this, and he says, My children, our love should not only be words and talk. No, our love must be real. We must show our love by the things we do. John says real love is not just about talk. It's about what we do. It's about our actions. And so you have to find ways to show your love to each other. So think about it like this. Uh, one, of the, one of the best things that you can learn, and we've talked about this many, many times. It's such a great reminder. Gary Chapman is the original author of a book called Five Love Languages. There might, there's probably more than five, but it helps you kind of categorize like, 
okay, my spouse and I probably speak a different dialect. And so you've got to communicate love to your spouse and vice versa in a way where they actually hear it and in a way where it fills up their bucket, where their bucket starts to get full. And so for me, I am a words of affirmation guy. I just, I, I'm, a, I'm a word nerd. So when my wife says things to me like, you are looking so handsome today. You, you, oh, you are so strong. You are such a good man. I'm so proud of the way that you provide for our family. You're such a good dad. When any of those things, I'm just like, tell me more. I feel loved. My bucket fills up. So here's my natural tendency, because that's the language of love that I speak. It's natural for me to want to reciprocate that and just go, let me tell you about you. How, all the things I love about you. Now, her primary language might not be words of affirmation, but quality time. So if I'm showering her with words and going, I love you, I think you're beautiful, I love what a great mom you are, I'm so proud of all the things that you do, and I'm, and I'm doing this, and I think I am filling her bucket. And then I walk away, but never spend any time with her. And she just comes to me and goes, oh, man, I just feel so distant. And I'm going, what? I don't understand. I, I communicated it so clearly how much I love you. But we speak different languages. And so we got to figure out a way, how does my spouse give and receive love? Now, Gary Chapman says there's five primary ways, but there's different blends of these and probably some other ones that he hasn't thought of, you know. He says words of affirmation is a big one. Serving others, the way that you serve each other. Like for some of you, it's like, I love you. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, I did the dishes. Oh my gosh, you've never looked so good. Uh, it might be uh, giving, giving gifts. And it's not like lavish, expensive gifts. It's just that you took time to think of me. You, you, you bought me a little gift and it just says, oh, wow, that's so thoughtful. For some people, that's their love language. For, so you give me a gift, it doesn't even ping my radar. It's like, oh, okay, whatever. But for some people, when you give them a gift, they're like, oh my gosh, that's the most thoughtful thing I've ever seen. For, for some people, it's physical touch. For some people, it's all of these things. Uh, words of affirmation, quality time, giving gifts, serving others, physical touch, all of these things. And there might, there's more. The question is, what actually makes my spouse, what communicates love to my spouse in a way that, that they feel it, in a way that it fills their bucket? And what can I do to communicate that to them? And if both spouses will work on this, and not just say it with their words, but do things, Show it with their actions. Do it in a way that fills their bucket. And if the bulk of your time is spent saying, I love you, but your bucket is constantly being drained, then there's a disconnect. It makes love difficult to believe. So your love can't just be a matter of words. It's got to be a matter of conduct. Make your love a choice. Make your love a matter of conduct. And then number three, make your love others-centered. Your love should be others-centered. See, when... The Apostle Paul writes and says, don't be selfish. He's, he's, the opposite of selfish is sacrifice. And even if you're not a God person, even if you're not a church person, and you're just like, I'm just kind of checking this out because I want some help with my marriage, here it is. Even if you remove God from the equation, unless you remove love, you will experience sacrifice. Love and sacrifice, real love and sacrifice are synonymous. Now, the problem for us is that in the English language, we have one word for love. And so we use the exact same word to say, I love you to our parents. It's the exact same word that we say, I love you to our spouse. It's the exact same word that we say, I love queso. It's all the same. And so it, it, the lines get blurred. 
However, uh, the authors of the New Testament wrote primarily in Greek. And in Greek, there are multiple words to describe multiple types of love. And so you have uh, eros, which is like, it's where we get the word erotic. It's a sexual uh, passion. And then you have uh, phileo, which means a brotherly love. It's more reciprocal. It's, it's more that uh, uh, kind of uh, friendship. And then you have this thing called agape. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes about. This is what Jesus talked about. Agape love is others-centered. It means this. I will do whatever is in your best interest, even if it costs me. Because I'm, I'm so for you that even if it costs me, but it, but it helps you, I'm for that because I'm for you. That's an others-centered kind of love. This is the kind of love that the Apostle Paul writes about and talks about. And this is the kind of love he talks about and describes that Jesus did for us. And so Paul writes to people, again, in the first century in Philippi and says this, don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. The opposite of selfish is to put others first. Selfish is, it's, it's right there. The word self is in the word selfish. It means I'm going to do what is in my best interest. And so the opposite of that is, the opposite of selfish is, I'm going to do whatever is in your best interest, even, even if it costs me. So Paul says, don't, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. In other words, what would be in your best self-interest if you were God? If you were divine, is it in your best self-interest to continue to be divine or to become human? It's in your best interest to be divine. Paul says, no. Here's what Jesus did. He gave up his divinity, became human, did it for us. Is the opposite of selfish. He chose others-centered. There is this dynamic in marriage that is rarely talked about, but is extremely powerful. And that is when two people decide to sacrifice their rights and expectations for the other. And when that happens, it is the most powerful relational dynamic that you can experience. Imagine if every conflict in your marriage was this. After you, no, 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 after you, I insist. Hey, do, do you want the last pudding? No, 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 I want you to have the last pudding. Instead of like, there's one pudding left, I am going to hide that sucker in the back of the fridge. <laughs> yeah, you're laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. What if, what if every conflict was just like, where would you like to eat? Oh, I, I, where, wherever you'd like to eat. Hey, uh, let's go to your parents for the holidays this year. No, 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 let's go to your parents. We went to ours last year. No, oh, uh, hey, I could be wrong about this, but what do you think? I'd love to hear your opinion on this. No, you know what? I could be wrong too, but here, here's where I'm at. What if every conflict you had was just a competition to put the other person first? And every conflict was just, no, 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 I, no, after you. I insist. I know after you. I insist. What an amazing dynamic that would be. It is very difficult to have a contentious relationship with someone who is constantly putting you ahead of themselves. And when both spouses do this, the dynamic that is created in your marriage is powerful. You've got to put others first. Make it a choice. Make it about your conduct. And make it others-centered. And finally, number four, work every day on who you're becoming. Work every day on who you're becoming. When people get married, uh, they are getting married to not just the person standing in front of them. They're getting married to the person each of them is becoming. You're always becoming. 
which means you're always changing, you're evolving. And, and the reality is, instead of spending your time and energy and focus on trying to train your spouse to sort of fit your picture of marriage and meet your needs, what if you spent all of your time and energy on focus working on the type of person that you are becoming? That would make a huge difference. Ask yourself this question. If you were your spouse, would you want to be married to you? That's a great question to ask. That's an that's a eye-opener. Oh, would I want to be married to me? If, if I said to me what I just said to them, would I want to be married to that? That's a great question to ask. What are you planting in the soil of your own heart that is now coming out in marriage? Here's our tendency. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much chemistry you start out with. It doesn't matter. There are issues in your own heart that you need to deal with. As people, we are broken. And so when one broken person gets married to another broken person, you have not, oh, now we're whole and complete. Nope, you just have two broken people married to each other. The goal is that I work on becoming more like Jesus, and my spouse is working on becoming more like Jesus. And as we do that, we grow closer together to one another. But if you don't work on you, the pressures and the stress and the intensity of marriage will eventually th cause things to rise to the surface. Jesus said it like this. Jesus said this, every good tree produces good fruit, and bad trees produce bad fruit. Jesus just said, look, you're going to know what is in the soil based on the fruit on the branches. He said, you know, what comes out of your mouth is because it was in your heart. And so here's what happens. This is an abstract concept for many of us because if there's something in my heart that's selfish, if there's something in my heart that's more about me, my tendency is to point fingers at my spouse and blame them. And I say, you make me angry. You make me frustrated. Look at what you did. This is because of you that I'm like this. It's kind of like these uh, cups of candy that I brought with me today. This is one single person and another single person. And they're just beautiful, him and her. And they meet, and there's chemistry, and they feel great about it. And then they get married, and the chemistry goes away, and they start to bump into each other. And stuff comes out. Stuff like harsh words. Stuff like temper. Stuff like uh, things that you thought you would never say, that you say to the only person that you claim to love more than anybody in the world, but you would never say that to anybody else. Well, why did that come out? I've never said anything like that to anyone before. And the only reason that came out is because I got married to you. You brought that out of me. And Jesus would say, nope, the reason that came out is because it was in there. The reason that came out of you is because it was in you. You've just never had to deal with the pressure of being married to somebody. When you were single, it was still in there. You just weren't worried about it. It was still in there. You just had a great filter. When you were dating, you hid the crazy so you could get them on the hook. And now, real life is hitting. And now, it's coming out of you because it was in you. That's the only reason. And now I have a piece of candy stuck to the bottom of my shoe. Okay. And Jesus would say, look, you know a tree by its fruit. The reason that that is coming out of you is because that is what is in you. And it's understandable. When we're single, most of us didn't realize the issues in our own heart because we never had to deal with it. We didn't have the pressure of marriage to have to deal with those things. And the moment we start living in close proximity with another human being, what is in starts to come out. What is in there starts to come out. So here's the question. What flaws in your marriage, what, what flaws is your marriage revealing about what's in your heart? That's coming out not because of marriage. Marriage is just surfacing what is already in there. So what's in there? What's coming out now that you're married? Is it, are you a fearful person? Do you realize that you're more selfish than you actually thought? Is it possible that you're a person who can't admit when they're wrong? 
Are you more demanding than you ever imagined? Are you more stubborn than you realized? Are you abrasive and harsh? Are you impatient and irritable? Are you fueled by a desire to be liked? Are you a selfish person? What is starting to come out of you because of the pressure of marriage? It's not your spouse's fault. It's coming out because it's already in you. And that's why the best thing we can do for our spouse is work on becoming the right person, that we can work on who we are becoming. That's why Proverbs, uh, King Solomon writes this, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Because whatever is in your heart, stop being an expert at monitoring your spouse's heart and start being an expert at monitoring your own. Because whatever is in there eventually comes out and goes into your marriage. And you've got to deal with that. And so what are you planting in the soil of your heart? Now, we're going to close. And as we do, I understand there are some of you here today and maybe your marriage is hanging on by a thread. There are some of you here today and you've experienced the pain of divorce. This, this series is in no way intended to shame you because of that season that you're in. What we do know is this, and we say this all the time, and we say it because we believe it, that God is way more concerned with your future than he is with your past. Maybe you're here today and you're like, we've been married for a long time, but these are just great reminders because over time, it's easy to drift. Whatever it is, that wherever you find yourself, so others of you, you're just overwhelmed because you're like, man, you know, we've been married and we love each other, but we got three kids, seven and under. We're ships in the night. I mean, so we just need to, like, you're going to get through that season, but these are great reminders to help you. Others of you are overcoming some hurts in your relationship because somewhere along the way, trust got broken, and you love each other, but you're trying to figure that out and navigate that. And what I can tell you is there are countless stories and challenging situations that are represented here. But I also know I'm not naive enough to think that a three-week series on marriage is going to fix your marriage. I know that it can be a first step in the right direction. And so... It can be a future-changing moment if you decide to move forward on a new path and begin to establish some habits and put in place a plan to help your marriage thrive. And I know that because I've witnessed it so many times with so many couples who are a part of Westbridge Church. And I want you to know God can give you strength that is beyond your own. He can give you hope when you feel like hope is lost. He can give you courage to receive forgiveness and extend forgiveness when you've been hurt. Today is not a fix-all, but for some of you, it's a great reminder. For some of you, it's a first step. And for others of you, it's, it's a new beginning, which is what God wants for all of us. Jesus did not cling to his rights as God. He gave them up. He became human. And then Paul continues and says, and then he allowed himself to be put to death. He died a criminal's death on a cross. His body was laid in a tomb. And according to hundreds and hundreds, multiple eyewitness accounts, Jesus actually rose from the dead. And if Jesus has power over death, then he has the power to overcome the things that are bringing death to you, death to your relationships, death to your marriage you put your trust in him. And then he promises, if if you'll put your trust in me, if you'll make me the the Lord, the leader of your life, not only will you experience a life that will flourish here in this earth, but you're invited to be a part of God's family. And you'll experience eternal life as a part of God's family. And so if you've never said yes to that invitation, I want to invite you to say yes by agreeing with this prayer. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you. And I'm so grateful you never walk away from me. And I pray, make me your son, make me your daughter, and help me to follow your way of living life as best as I know how from this moment on. And then, God, for every one of us who find ourselves, regardless of where we are relationally, may we choose love, not just chemistry and infatuation, but may we choose commitment and love, and may we make it a matter of action and not just words. May we put others first 
and always work on who we're becoming and becoming more and more like Jesus. And as we do that, we pray for stronger marriages, stronger families, a strong community. May, we, may our lives and the way that we live and the way that we love point others to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.